Welcome listeners to a brand new bonus episode of Oh My Word Podcast. And today we've got a really special treat. we got Colby Granville, who's founder and editor-in-chief of After Dinner Conversation, which is we have a literary magazine, but they also have anthologies and podcasts that go with it. Tons and tons of stuff. So Colby, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to have you. And full disclosure, it is possible that one of my stories has been published in After Dinner Conversation. <laughs> it was. Okay, it was. And everyone, you can check out the link. We'll put links up so everyone can find it all afterward. Check it out. Get the anthology. Get all the stuff. Sign up for everything. So just because we always start off with like our origin story, how did this come about that you're like, you know what I need in my life? I need to run a literary magazine. Boy, if I'd have known, I would have thought long and hard about it. So like a lot of things, it came about because of necessity. I am a huge fan of science fiction, Star Trek Next Generation, Westworld, the Battlestar Galactica reboots, all this sort of stuff. And what it really occurred to me was the thing I liked about science fiction isn't the science or the fiction. It's the tool that it gives you to ask questions. It's the same way that animation sometimes does it too where they can say, I've got something about the modern world I want to talk about, but I want to talk about it in a way that makes you not put up these barriers that we all have in our heads. And that's what science fiction has a history in, and that's what it does well. But all sorts of writing does that. And so at some point I was teaching the ones who walk away from Omala, and I realized this is why I read stories. I don't read stories... Game of Thrones is a great example. I respect it. I get it. But I feel like it is a work of effort, not a work of art. And I know it's going to offend some Game of Thrones fans. But what I mean by that is these sort of long 300 book series, it seems like. All this world building. That's fine. Personally, I don't read books for the world building. I read books because they make me think a thought I hadn't thought before. And that's the same reason I watch science fiction. I don't care if there's laser beams. I care that I'm looking at a world and I'm looking at a situation where I I have to question my own choices and values and opinions. And it occurred to me that there isn't anything like that. It just doesn't exist. And that's what I read and that's what I write and that's what I like. But it's slim pickings. And the reason it's slim pickings is because it is a genre of writing that spans the genres. And so could you ask some really interesting questions in a Western? Yes, you could. Could you ask that in a romance novel? Yes, you could. Could you do it in science fiction? Could you do it in women's lit? You can do it in children's literature. You can do it in anything. And so what I was really had figured out in my head without knowing it was there was a genre that I liked that was not a genre, that spanned genres. And that is stories that ask interesting questions. It makes it really hard to explain to people what to submit to us. That is for sure. The actual thing of that would be, if I would think, is are you the kind of writer who wants your readers to specifically be thinking about something? Or are you just writing to either entertain or just share this world you've created? Yeah, entertainment irrelevant. Ideally, it entertains. Entertainment is the sort of the sugar that makes the medicine go down. And so if you look at a book, and I'll take a really easy example, The Grapes of Wrath. The Grapes of Wrath, everyone's read it, so it's an easy example to do. It is a book not about the Dust Bowl, and it's not about the family. The reason it's interesting to us, and the reason that kids read it in school, in part, is because it's about the relationship between businesses and government and individuals and how those things interact and how they affect people and how sometimes decisions can be removed from those affected, about how corporate structures can create situations that no rational person would ever do. That's what the book is about, at least for me. 
But you have to wrap that in a story. You can't fortune cookie it. You have to wrap it in a story. And so the story they wrapped it in was the Dust Bowl. Could it have been wrapped in ancient Rome, ancient Greece, Thatcher era, England? It could have been wrapped in any location and time. Because the location and time was never the point of the story. And for the stories that I like to read, that's always the case. And so do I read something like Harry Potter? Sure, there's absolutely a place for it. But I don't necessarily find it, I don't want to say interesting, I just don't find it compelling. It's all sugar and no medicine, I guess you could say. And that's not to say that there aren't deeper things in Harry Potter. There are. But the ratio is not what I would hope when I read something. Well, maybe just because you use the Grapes of Wrath, so that's what I'm thinking that now, but it sounds like what you're describing is sort of almost anything that makes it into a literature clause. Because it's like, oh, we have to dissect everything that's in here. You're not necessarily talking about that either. Because something that could be in literature class could be about the style and still not necessarily about what's the thought at the core of it. Absolutely. You know, you're right. I mean, I am a humanities teacher, so it's not surprising that I find humanities sort of stories interesting. The thing that I dislike about The Grapes of Wrath, since we're using that example, is the ratio is off. It's a 500-page book that if, if you were only asking the question in that story in a way that sucked people in and was compelling and was interesting, you could do it in 50 or 60 pages. There's 250 pages of story building that doesn't really serve the purpose of the book. I'll give you the perfect example of one that does have the right ratio, because it's also a pretty well-known one, is if you look at something like Flowers for Algernon. It's 70 pages, 100 pages. You can read it in a sitting. But the things that it's getting to are really worthwhile and couldn't probably be done in a shorter number of pages. And so that's the issue, is, is what's the least number of pages that you can make me question the way I view my life and my choices in the world around me? So I wonder, would Shane, Shane by Jack Schaefer would be one also? That's a Western that has a certain, also about law and order or a lot of other things like that that are in it. It could be. I'd have to think about it a bit. If you look at something like Huck Finn, it's the same sort of thing. There's a part in Huck Finn, it's sort of the pivotal point in the book, where Huck has to decide, am I going to go help the slave Jim and go to hell? Or am I going to listen to good Christian people? That's the book. The whole book is that one thing. There's a lot wrapped in it. There's a lot of great storytelling. There's a lot of great things. But the question in the book is, does an individual know right? And can they do right in spite of what society is telling them right is? Because everyone around Huck is saying, black people are slaves, you shouldn't lie, you shouldn't cheat, you'll go to hell, you go to the bad place. And he decides that he is the source of his own morality. That's the book. And it just so happens it's wrapped in a slave story. And again, I should say that's the book for me. I mean, obviously other people get other things out of it. And so I wanted to make a publication that was that thing. Is that why you went with short stories instead of just saying, oh, I'll write a book or have a publishing company? Short stories, why did that answer that specifically? That's a great question. So the reason for the short stories, it's a little bit, I used to write sketch comedy in my, my university. And I used to say that it traumatized me because once you start thinking about sketch comedy in your everyday life, you can't turn that switch off. Once you ask yourself, oh, what would happen if I did this? This would make a funny sketch. That's it. 30 years later, I still think of sketches as I'm going through my daily life. And that same sort of thing happens with these sort of questions, that once you start seeing them, you never unsee them in your daily life anymore. Because wherever there's something that you're like, oh, this is right and this is wrong, that's fine. So you take the thing that's 
right and you just nudge it just a little bit towards the wrong. Did your answer change? And you nudge it a little bit more. Did your answer change? And eventually you're going to get to a spot where you're not sure what your answer is. And that's exactly the spot you want to be in because that spot makes you ask yourself, what is it about just to the right and just to the left that is the quintessential thing that matters? And I'll give you an example. Let's say that somebody says, I believe in the Second Amendment. I believe in the right to bear arms. And everyone views this as a binary black and white thing. But it's not if you take this view at it. So it's like, okay, you, you have the right to carry a gun. Cool. What about an automatic gun? Yeah. Can I go buy a, a box of hand grenades at Walmart without an ID check? No. Why not? What's the difference between a box of hand grenades and an automatic gun? Except tradition. But tradition is a terrible reason to make a moral choice, or at least to justify a moral choice. Sometimes it's a good reason to make a moral choice. And so you're like, okay, so not a hand grenade. Let's find something between a hand grenade and an automatic weapon. And eventually that person is going to have to figure out what is the actual thing that makes one okay and one not okay. So as soon as you change the conversation to are you in favor of gun control to where do you fall on this scale of weapon control, now you have a really interesting discussion. And in fact, you'd have a really interesting short story that we'd publish about that if somebody wrote it. And once you start thinking about things in that way, they are everywhere. Oh, great. So I'm going to start seeing that now everywhere now, huh? Yeah, I hope so. That's the end of it. We generally don't think about these things because we do this sort of what, what I'd call cognitive energy saving, where we make a decision and it takes a certain amount of mental energy to make that decision, either by thought or by habit or by parental teaching. And if we reevaluated every choice we made, we'd be exhausted at the end of the day. It would be like trying to speak Japanese all day. And so what do we do? We make that decision at some point in our past. We compartmentalize it, and then we recall it and reuse it without thought. Why you have brown rice instead of white rice, whatever. And so the idea is, is that let's take those presumed answers and nudge them in a way that's interesting in a short story to make you have to do that thought process again and to try and figure out what the core of your reasoning is besides 20 years ago, somebody told me it's not nice to give someone the finger when they cut you off in traffic. There might be good reasons for that, but do you know what the good reasons are? So all that in general, the kind of stories you're looking for. Yeah. What am I looking for? I'm looking for everything. So this also goes to why it's so hard for us to find stories is whenever we put something on duotrope or any of these story seeking things, you have the check boxes. What genre are you looking for? Our genre doesn't exist. So we have to put all. Right when the publication started, we were getting 30, 40 submissions a day and we couldn't keep up because people are like, well, you take everything. Here's this, here's this, here's this. And we're like, no, we don't take any of this because it's not that we do or don't take fantasy. We take this sort of something. So after we built up a backlog of 500 stories that we couldn't possibly get through in weeks, we built up that many. I emailed everyone in a mass email and said, here is your homework. No one is on our reading list anymore. Do this and then resubmit if you think you fit to us. And I got 20 or 30 really angry emails about how unprofessional I was. I got about 200 of them back. And those are the ones we read. And so now I stole an idea from a rock and roll group in the 80s, I think it was, Van Halen. They put in their rider when they would perform that they wanted a jar of only red M&Ms, and which everyone thought they were being eccentric rock stars. The reason they said later in interviews when they did that is it proved you read the contract. And so that means that if you, if you had the jar of red M&Ms, you probably had the correct speaker requirements. 
you probably had the correct guitar requirements, the correct fire safety requirements, and all of these things. And so on our website, we put, you have to copy and paste this sentence into our thing in order for us to ever look at your story. And that's definitely fixed our problem, like 60%. So now instead of getting 30 a day, we get about, I don't know, five or six. And then I recently just uploaded a video, like a five minute video that was just like, look, here's what we're looking for. And so now we're down to, you know, three, four, five a day, but we don't get these spam submissions anymore. I don't know, we're in a really unique space where we both are a philosophy ethics magazine, but we're also a literary magazine. We have a very weird Venn diagram. It makes sense. I want a story that you can actually articulate what the thoughts are behind your story. As in like what your thought questions are behind the story. Yeah. So one of the things that we tell people is when you submit to us, don't tell us your biography. We don't care where you're published. We don't want any of that bias in what we're reading. Just send us the thing. And so then after we find the ones to publish, we'll email the author and be like, hey, can you tell us a little bit about yourself for the bio? And what I found within just a year or two of the publication starting, within months probably, was that there are two kinds of people that submit. There are writers who have some BA or masters in creative writing who submit stories to us. They get published with us, but probably only 20 or 30% of the time. And then we have people that are just sort of nerds who also write. And so it's kind of like, are you a writer who's trying to have deep thoughts or you are a person who has deep thoughts who wants to also write about those deep thoughts and they just sort of permeate your thinking process. So I would say 70% of the people that we publish without even knowing it before when we say yes, will have a PhD in typically economics, political philosophy, philosophy, computer programming, ethnography. Honestly, I would say we have to have the highest percentage of non-writing related PhDs in people we publish. It's gotta be probably 60 or 70%. Wow. Yeah. That actually kind of makes sense because, again, you're not specifically just looking for the good story. You're looking for, for the thought right. that's written as well. Sometimes we will publish stories where we have this discussion where it's like, this is a really great question. How's the writing? It's good enough. Uh, okay, no, no, we can, it'll be fine. That is definitely a discussion. We say, if the question is interesting enough. And so I'll give you an example. Hopefully this person never listens to your podcast. Uh, we published a story early on called Community of Peers. It's in our season one anthology. It's a great story. It's very short. It's like 1500 words. And it's about a guy who is hiking in the woods in the, like the rainforest. And he comes across a tribe and the tribe says, we're so glad you're here we have someone who's been waiting to suffer a death penalty. And it's our tradition in our community that a foreigner will do it so that none of the people here will be burdened with knowing the person because it's a small community. And so we need you to do this. And the guy's like, well, I don't know. What did he do wrong? Does it matter? We have a system. The system was followed. We believe that system is just. It may or may not be. It doesn't really matter in your state. It's our just system. He was found guilty. He should be put to death. And as a way to, to spare our community the stress of murdering someone, it falls on you to do it. How is the writing? Good enough. How is the question? Phenomenal. Because it brings up so many of these questions about we all participate in our own criminal justice system through our taxes and through our choices, but we know nothing about it. We don't question it. We just are like, yeah, whatever, it functions. And then the other question that it comes up is just, if you believe in justice, then surely you believe that you should be able to administer that justice. Because what does it matter if you believe in the system we have, then it shouldn't matter who shuts the door on the prison cell or who pulls the switch. 
you believe in our system. We believe in our system, therefore we're asking you to do it. And then of course, you might also ask the question, which is why this is such a great story. I wanna know if your system matches my values. So now what you're saying is that your culture has value and their culture doesn't. And that your cultural norms are okay, but their cultural norms are not. And so now there's a whole anthropological question here about imposing values on another society. And so there's like three to five really great spinoffs like this on what is 1,500 words of good enough writing. I would publish that kind of story all day long. We've got so many stories. I could probably come up with 30 stories that just stick with me as just like could have been a great a great Twilight Zone episode or a Black Mirror episode. Why did you decide you put the stuff up out of the magazine, which is digital, right? The magazine's mm -hmm. entirely digital. And then you put it into an anthology, which is in print. Why did you make that decision? Or which do, do all stores make it in? How did like what happens there? The order went in reverse, actually. So when I first started doing this, I didn't know what I was doing. So initially I was just like, well, we'll publish them on the website. And then I realized, oh, without too much work, you can publish them as eBooks on Amazon and and Barnes and Noble and all that. And it's really just a couple more clicks and some formatting. And after about six months or a year of doing that, I was like, well, I've got dozens, if not a hundred short stories on Amazon now for sale. That's an anthology. I could very easily put that into a print book. Nobody's going to buy a 1500 word book, but they'll buy an 80,000 word anthology. All right, it's a print book now. So I just put the stories together and called it a print book. And then at some point I was talking to someone and they were like, how many stories do you do a month? And I was like, well, we do five or six online each month on the website. And then they become an anthology from time to time. And they're like five or six a month. That's not a website. That's a magazine. And I was like, oh, we've been doing a magazine and we didn't know it. Then it became a magazine. And then what we realized, if it's a magazine, we can't keep publishing them all on our website. And so now we publish a few on our website. So the order went website, short stories on Amazon, print anthologies on Amazon, then magazine. And the magazine by far has become our main revenue stream at this point. Because, you know, somebody signs up for, you know, pays $1.99 a month. You get probably four to five hours of solid reading every month delivered to your inbox. And so that's, that's what we do now. I'd love it to be a print magazine, but candidly, I just don't know how to do it. I don't know how that works. And I certainly don't know where you sell it anymore now that there are no bookstores. So it may be a print magazine at some point, but everyone I've talked to who does print magazines for literary magazines, they say they do them because it makes the authors feel good, but that the print magazines lose money and it's the digital magazine where they actually make their money. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I remember I was once looking for a magazine. I wanted a single issue and I couldn't get a single issue. It was only subscribe to the whole thing and get, you know, 14 issues for whatever. No, I don't want that. I just wanted the one issue. Yeah, it's tough. The people that do still have print magazines that are literary magazines are usually associated with a university and they get, somebody writes them a check for a hundred grand a year from the university. And so it's really not about breaking even. It's about the prestige that it brings to their creative writing program. Yeah, it's underwritten. Yeah, for sure. How do you come up with the name for your magazine? Good question. So the reason I initially started doing the magazine, the night before my wedding, I was talking to my friend because he would, all my friends come in town for the wedding. And he was like, so what are you going to do next? Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I'll tell you what I want to do, but it's a stupid idea. I don't know. And he was like, sounds like a perfectly good idea. If nothing else, it's a hobby. The worst thing that happens is you do it and then you stop doing it. And we were talking and I was like, yeah, I think I will do that. So I always know the date of when the magazine started because it started on literally my wedding day. And we were talking about it till like three o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, I like to read stories where when you're done, you want to talk to your friends about them. The best movies aren't the ones where you're just entertained. The best movies are the ones where when you're walking back to your car, 
you're like, oh, I can't believe he did that. What was that? That was so weird. I didn't see that ending coming. The movie is the springboard for the conversation. And in some cases, the conversation is the thing you remember more than even the movie years later. I'm like, I just, I missed that after dinner conversation, that thing where everyone hangs out and talks about something. Turns out there is a term for that in Spanish called like, I think it's sobra mesa or something. It's like the after dinner talk or table talk or something, which is exactly this. You've had dinner with your family and now you all hang out at the dinner table and have a conversation. And so that's where the name came about from. Uh, really, it was it was descriptive. As soon as you hear it, you're like, oh, I know exactly what they're going for. And then also just, just to verbally clarify, you're willing to print almost any genre of story as long as it has the kind of core philosophical questions to them. Yeah. And do you have policies on either language use or a certain kind of anything that would be like gratuitous or like whatever you say, like keep it clean or like what's the deal with that? Generally speaking, we shoot for PG-13 or less. That said, if it fits the story, it's fine. It's frustrating, not just for me, but I think for the readers that we get as well, the people who volunteer readers, is science fiction and fantasy tend to have dabbled in this, this area for a long time. You almost never see it in westerns or erotica or other genres. And that's a shame because it could be there. It just isn't. Every time I do a podcast interview, I'm just like, you know, if somebody wrote a good enough Western, we would publish it just because we never do. We don't want people to think we're a science fiction magazine because we're not. But that just seems to be 80% of our submissions. But it would be the same thing for erotica. If somebody wrote a story, there, there are a million great stories about consent and about fetish and about the source of desire. But nobody ever writes those stories in a way, they're, they're bodice rippers. If you look on Amazon, there's a million stories like that. And so the thing that could make those kind of stories the most interesting is the thing that that genre doesn't write into the genre. Fifty Shades of Grey is one of the only books I've ever put down. And it wasn't because I was offended by the topic. I was offended by the writing. It is horribly written. It is the worst writing I have ever read in my life. And it's a shame because every aspect of our lives has these kinds of questions. And every time period has these kinds of questions. So stories set in the Middle Ages is just as suited as anything else. I've asked writers before, but it sounds like you have this kind of like in a parallel way that any story, no matter what genre it is, if you strip away the genre, the story at the center is something that's going to be so, for example, like, let's say there is a science fiction story, but if you strip away the space bar and the rocket ships, you might find within it a story of friendship, right. a story of family, right? Like that. Yep. So it sounds like you're going for, if you strip away all those parts, we want the story that's got the philosophical question in the middle of it. You're exactly right. That's exactly it. If you're ever looking for like a litmus test on this sort of thing, I'll give you one more example. There was an old original Star Trek episode from the original series with terrible special effects, blah, 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 where they land on a planet and the people are split down the middle of their face and the left side of their face is white and the right side of their face is black. But another group of people on the planet it's reverse. The right side of their face is black and the left side of their face is white. And they've been in this race genocide war for generations. And of course, then when the Enterprise arrives on the planet, they're like, you look the exact same. Clearly you are the same species. Clearly you are the same people. Clearly you are the same thing. You've got to be kidding me. You're killing each other over something so trivial. That story isn't about white and black faced people. It's not about science. It's not about fiction. It is about race in America in the 1960s. But you can't do race in America in the 1960s in a TV show. And there are a million topics that still exist like that today, either in the larger culture or within our own personal biases, where we're like, I'm not ready to address this directly. I need you to give me a story so I don't know that I'm 
I'm addressing it tangentially. It's kind of like saying that we're using fiction as a uh, as a framework. Yeah. Or something that's actual reality or something. Yeah, the, the point of the fiction isn't the fiction. The best fiction is about the truth. You use lies to tell truth. Yeah. Imagination to tell truth. Sure. But just make it nicer for all those writers out there who are like, this isn't a lie. Yeah, for sure. The world is real. But that's the thing is you're creating this scenario to tell the truth that you want to tell. Whether that's a truth about love or about friendship or about, you know, whatever. That's the kind of story we're looking for. Right. And then here's just one more question on all this. I don't know if there's, if you could verbalize it, if it's just something you get a sense for. Because sometimes when you're really focusing on the thought, on the philosophical aspect of something, the story can get kind of heavy. It could become a little bit too dense, maybe. So I guess the question would be some, maybe sometimes in regard to the balance, or maybe that's why sometimes you have the 500 page book with all the world building so that it could very subtly push the question in there. Yeah. Or, uh... I don't know, what, what would you comment on that? This comes up quite a bit because I, I have to put this in rejection emails all the time. And it's the idea to word density. You've got a core idea you're talking about that is the point of the story. What is necessary to draw me in to think about what you want me to think? That is relevant. Is the color of the room relevant? No. The color of the room doesn't get me any closer to the thing you want me to think about. The relationship of the characters might. The dialogue might. The facial expressions, the abuses they, they heap on each other, the world building so that I just know, oh, I'm living in a world where everyone has two left feet, whatever. But you're not setting up that world building because it doesn't matter. You're setting up that world building because you can't ask the question in any world but that one. So I've got a million stories in my head that we've published. I can give you an example of one is there's a story where a pastor goes to another planet where these giant teddy bears live. But they're not teddy bears. They're people. They just are multicolored and they're furry and they're like teddy bears. And he starts his church and none of the teddy bears show up. What you learn throughout the story is that they have their own religion and their own belief system and they like it and they're not upset with it and they're cool with it. And you learn the differences between sort of typical Christian opinions and some other form. You have to do world building to explain that. You can't just say like, I want next door and they made their own religion. No, you've got to create some plausible scenario where someone has never heard of Christianity. They've never heard of sort of Judeo-Christian philosophy and history of life. And they've come to entirely unique conclusions. Now, do you need five pages to do that? No. You can probably do it in half a page, three quarters of a page. It's a density issue is really what it is. It's kind of like saying that whatever you're writing has to be part of the formation of the question. That's correct. Kind of. It has to serve the question. Yep. Because you also not just ask the question necessarily. Of like, why are we all so different? Because that's... That's it's not interesting. Right. And it's also not the way people think. There's a reason that writers exist. It's because storytelling exists. And there's a reason that storytelling exists because that's the way memory and making sense and organizing the world exists for human brains. And so we organize our interactions that way. We then tell those stories in that way. And then later we've written them down in that way. You can't just come at it. Why are corporations evil? Well, they may or may not be. You need to give me an example. You need to give me a story. You need to give me a scenario. Right. 
Because then the scenario itself also offers a fact that there can be two different options to the answer. It may be fact pattern specific. That's exactly right. Okay, so one more question. I always do this, but one more question. Yeah, no worries. I'm glad I'm piquing your interest. It's very interesting. But this is actually just a technical one. With the magazine itself, because you said you kind of have volunteer readers. Mm -hmm. So the submissions come in and you kind of have gatekeepers and you see all the submissions that they've vetted. Because if anyone didn't copy the sentence or if anybody didn't do whatever, so that's automatically deleted. Yeah, I've seen before that people say that agents or a lot of publishers that most of our rejections are people who didn't follow the submission guidelines. Surprisingly common. So we actually have two ways that I have the readers score the readings. They score it on a scale of one to three, three being great, one being like incomprehensible on the quality of the writing and the storytelling in in general. And then they score it one to three also on is it the kind of thing we publish? If you score a one on either of those, you're probably done. If you score a two on the quality of the writing, but a three on the kind of thing we publish, you probably move on. If you're a two, three or a three, two, you probably advance. And then those are the stories that other people will also read and see if they agree. And eventually I'll skim all of those and read all of them myself. Because one of the difficulties is I have, and maybe this is just ego, but I have such a clear thing in my head of what I'm looking for. It takes a considerable amount of time for readers to tune a hundred percent they can get 80 percent there really quickly but getting that last 20 percent is pretty tough and also i'm writing all the questions so ultimately that's why i select all i'm the final say on all the stories is because you might read a story and it might really speak to a lot of interesting things that are going on in your mind but then i have to write the questions for it and if i don't see what you see then i don't know how to even write those questions by the way each story comes with five discussion questions for people who haven't read it before since i have to write those five discussion questions i have to personally find the story interesting so the cut is if you're thinking about how this might work is we get 100 submissions 10 to 15 of them have done something wrong in the submission process we're now down to 85 30 clear readers i would say and then probably five to seven clear me and so we tend to run about a three to five percent maybe six percent acceptance rate we read a lot of stories well, I wonder, is that kind of standard, would you say? Well, from anybody that you know who does literary magazines? I would say that it is standard for big literary magazines. I don't know if it's standard for a magazine of our size. It's just because you're so specific. Because we're so specific. So now if you were to go to like, um, I don't even know, you know, pick your big magazine that, you know, when you do a Google search and just type in literary magazine shows up on the first page, they deal in a much higher volume of submissions They're looking for the highest quality writing and writing alone. They might have a half a percent acceptance rate. Now, if you start going to the third and fourth Google page, you start going to people that magazines that are maybe five to eight or 10 years old that aren't supported by a university. I think their acceptance rates tend to be 10 to 15 to 25 percent, maybe if I had to guess. So the fact that we're three to five percent is probably really low. If I had to guess, when I've talked to other people, we're really low given our age and our sort of renownedness. You're like the New Yorker of small magazines. Yeah. If the New Yorker told me they had a 3 to 5% acceptance rate, I'd be like, wow, that's a lot higher than I would have expected. Right. This is very low, right? And nobody really knows what gets you in or not. Yeah. I don't think if you submit, I don't even think you get it. There's no chance. And it used to be worse. Remember, this is when I said early on, we got those 500 submissions. Right. Our acceptance rate initially was one in 100, you know, half of oh, well. And it was just like, we can't read this. There's not enough readers 
to read this many stories. The other thing I will mention is if you want to get published by us, the fastest way to figure us out is to become a reader. You read 30 or 40 or 50 stories over a period of a few months, and you start to figure out what we do. And then it's just like, oh, I'll just write something for them because I know what they publish. We have a few people now who have been published three times, like once a year. And the reason is, is they just, they know what we do. So they sit down, they're like, I'm going to write something to get published in After Dinner Conversation. This is what they publish. And they're a competent writer who gets it. They could send us something every week, practically, that we would publish. Because once you get it, if you've mastered the craft, it's not hard to write anymore. Right. Well, because it's not a trick. You're very clear about what you're looking for. It's not a trick at all. And it's not like you have to be the greatest literary writer ever to get published with us. You have to be a competent writer that's asking a really compelling question. Once you get that, most writers who've been doing it for more than a few years are probably competent writers. Yeah, that's true. Why do you decide five questions at the end of each story? Why any or, or why not three or seven or I don't know? That's a great question. Initially, the questions didn't have a fixed number. So some stories had three or four, some had five or six, seven. And I got a complaint from an author who only had three or four questions. He's like, so did you think my story wasn't very good? Is that why you couldn't think of more questions? And I realized that that would be a way that authors or readers might feel like they were judging the story. And so starting several years ago, we're just like, everybody gets five. That's it. Now you'll notice that there's still a way to tell the ones that really resonate because some of those five questions can be very compound questions where it's like, what would you do? And would you do something different? And what is the basis of the decision that you made that on? And would it matter if you were doing this while standing on your head? That's a hint that probably we have a lot we would like to talk about, but we're still limiting it to five questions. You'll see other stories where the question is, why do you think the author wrote this story? Which is code for, I had four good questions and I needed a fifth. Uh, I'm going to go check my story now. Yeah, there no, I'm you kidding. Go. And the reason for the questions at all is because it's meant to be discussed. It's meant to be a collaborative process. And so the hope is, is that at the very least, you'll read the questions at the end and think about, have a dialogue with yourself. But the goal is that you'll hand the story to a friend and be like, hey, read this story. I've been thinking about it for a couple of days or a week. I want to talk to somebody about this because I really, this pisses me off and I really think or what, whatever. We know that our stories probably get passed around. They're designed to be passed around. Every time I get an email, we don't get them often, but every three to six months, I'll get an email from somebody saying, do you mind if I copy this and give it out to my book club? Yes, please give it out to your book club. Not every magazine, not every story, but yeah, this is perfect for book club. When you think about a book club, you don't join a book club to talk about the book. You join a book club to talk about all of the things the book made you think about, about the characters and who's good and who's evil and what do you think is going to happen? And you might talk about the quality of the writing and you might talk about the plot, but that's not really why you go to a book club. Right. How do you share a digital magazine? Here, take my iPad. Yeah. Well, you know, the people that subscribe through our website, they get a PDF as well. So if you subscribe through the website, you get a PDF, a Mobi and an EPUB. If you get it on Amazon, we've definitely had people where I'll go to look on an Amazon sales for the day and we'll have a short story that normally gets or a magazine that normally gets two to three downloads a day, 10 downloads a day. We'll get like 300 on one day. Oh, that's probably because a professor assigned it for a class assignment or a book club said, everyone go download this book and we're going to discuss it, which I'm totally cool with. I think that's awesome. Yeah. Sometimes people get annoyed because with something so specific and it's, oh, well, they have such a high rejection rate or whatever. But at the same time, when it's these broad literary magazines that in almost in a way, it's harder to submit to those because 
Be accept whatever. Well, then you're like one, you're, you're a voice of one in a thousand versus here you're saying you're like one in three or one in five or something. Well, daily, but. Yeah, but realistically, if you are a person who's mastered the craft relatively well, you're, you're a competent writer and you know what we do and you write something for what we do, I would bet your odds of getting published are probably one in five. That's how few of these that we get that are somebody like learned it and did it, which is why I say we don't publish as many people with a background in creative writing because they're trying to write great literature. Yeah, no, it's fine, but we don't need 7,000 words to say the thing you're trying to say because the thing you're trying to say doesn't require 7,000 words. And candidly, you're not that deep of a thinker. These are the things that we struggle with. Oh, well. Yeah. Wait, I know you said you get a lot of the fantasy and sci-fi, but can you say even within those genres, do you seem to get a lot of someone finds a tribe somewhere kind of stories or a lot of AI kind of stories or it varies once it's in those genres? We get a lot of utilitarian stories. And people don't necessarily know they're sending us utilitarian stories. Utilitarian is this idea that the goal is to do the greatest good. That's it. If you go into your dentist's office and they knock you out because you're getting your wisdom teeth out and they kill you and part your body out and somebody gets a liver and somebody gets a heart, somebody gets lungs, blah, blah, blah. You've saved five lives. A utilitarian would argue that was a ethical moral choice. There are a million simple ways to spin that idea. And so if you are a person who's just dabbling in this sort of thinking process, those are things that are some of the first things that occur to you. This idea of a flying robot comes to a car crash and only has time to save one person. And so it starts the medical procedure to save the younger person because they believe that person will live longer and therefore there's greater value in saving their life saving, you know, the 18-year-old's life over the 22-year-old's life. That doesn't require a lot of thinking. When you're born, you get a clone. The clone lives in a tube. They take parts off of your clone to save your life. These sort of medical AI utilitarian questions, they tend to be the first kind of questions in this area people think of, which is fine, but we've just published a lot of those. So we try to limit publishing one of those to every four to six months if we can spare it. We get a fair number of soul-related questions too. We got one a while ago, which I really liked. I'm not arguing against it, but we get it fairly often, is this idea of that they had discovered your soul and that it was in your appendix. Appendectomy, that's the name of the story, I believe. And there's basically two mothers live side by side. Both of the kids have an appendix infection. One mom gets the appendix removed and is just like, hey, kid, sorry, but you don't have a soul anymore. You're still alive. You're still a kid. You don't seem any different, but you don't have a soul. And the other mom, for religious reasons, is like, look, without a soul, what does your life mean and what happens when you die? And so she doesn't get her child's appendix removed. The kid dies from appendicitis, and that's it. That question isn't about your appendix, and it's not about families, and it's not about kids. It's really about the question of, one, do you think your soul exists? And two, what does it do for you? And what does that mean? Does that mean that you know right from wrong? Does that mean that you feel guilt? Does that mean that you just somehow have this Michelangelo, God-touching spark of life? The automatic door is not open for you now? Do you confuse cats? The answer doesn't really matter because everyone's answer is going to be based on their own upbringing and experiences and faith. What matters is, and this is true of all of our stories, that you've thought about why you think what you think. And you can now sort of distill your reasoning 
into something a little more succinct than it was before. I'll give you one last example. Lots of people, if you ask them, if you say, do you believe in a soul? The majority will say, no, it's kind of silly. I don't, whatever. Like there's a soul, maybe, I don't know, whatever. It's not a big deal. So you take all those people who say, no, I don't believe in a soul, whatever percentage that is, 20, 30, 50%. And you go, cool, do this for me. I'm gonna pay you 20 bucks, write on a piece of paper. The keeper of this piece of paper is the holder or keeper of my soul. Prick your finger in blood, put a thumbprint on it, give it to me. If you really think it means nothing, you'll do it. And of that group of people who say, no, I'm not religious, I don't believe in heaven and hell, I don't believe in the soul, you'll find a surprising number of those people won't write out that piece of paper and put blood on it. Which is like, you don't believe in a soul is what you're saying, but you're not willing to risk it by putting blood on a piece of paper, but you are willing to risk going to hell forever. And so that means you do suspect there might be something, but it's not the thing that makes you go to heaven and hell and that really puts you at risk for skipping a Sunday church. So what is it that you think you're—and and again, there's not a great answer to it, and the answer is very personal. But the very fact that you've now whittled that to a more core question is really interesting. Like, does having a soul compel certain sort of behaviors? And not just, can you tell what a cat is? What, was that one of the thought questions you put after that story? Not at all. I think one of the questions, I don't remember them now, but one of them was, would you trust a person with your children or with your family if this was a real world and if they really had had their appendix taken out? but they otherwise seem totally normal to you. Nothing seems to have changed. They just don't have their appendix in their soul anymore. Uh, would you still be friends with them? Would you still let them around your loved ones? There were some questions like that for sure. Which would all go back to the whole soul. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, you should read the story. It's a great story. There's a lot of catching up to do. I have my anthology, the one that my story's in. What's it? Did you answer that? All the ones that make it in the, in the magazine do make it into an anthology eventually? For now, they do. That may not always be that way, but for now, we do. So every time we get 25 stories, we put them in an anthology as a print. What I think we'll eventually do is just do one anthology a year. So maybe only about 40% of the stories will make it to the anthology. And eventually, I think we'll also do theme-based anthologies. So there'll be something only full of children's stories, only full of medical ethics type stories, ones only related to metaphysics or whatever. So that if you're a teacher in a class, you could actually assign that book because it would only cover the things you most cared about for that class. Yeah, very good. Well, I usually ask the wrap-up question, but I think you kind of, unless you have answers that are going to be outside of it. Well, let's say, do you have anything to answer the wrap-up question that we haven't said yet? Of I really like it when using anyone... Writers, editors, publishers, you say magazines, covers, anthologies, whatever, do X and really don't like X. I really like it when people do truth and I really don't like it when people do clever. Oh, interesting. The thing I'll say, and this is going to seem a little bit weird, at the end of the day, I think most people write because they love writing. And then eventually some people decide they want to get published. And so they start writing what they think people will publish. And so now you're doing what you don't even like and still not doing it successfully. So why not instead just write your truth? And then if nobody ever reads it, at the very least you've written what you genuinely wanted to read and what you genuinely believe. Realistically, and this is just my own personal opinion, people don't read short stories or novels because they're excited about the topic. They read a short story or novel because you have made clear that you are excited about the topic. And that excitement comes through in your writing. That's definitely true. And so I, I would say do truth, not clever. That'd be my thing. 
Oh, so clever is not specifically not a surprise twist. No, it's just like, oh, people will love this. This will be interesting. This will be what they're looking for, whatever. I'll give you one last example. We had a guy, it was a great story, that submitted a story to us. It was a college professor in the story who just woke up one morning and just snapped and decided he was only going to really do what he genuinely wanted to do that day. And at the beginning, he's getting up and his wife's making dinner. She says, I love you. He pauses and she says, aren't you going to say you love me back? And he goes, I don't know but thank you for making breakfast. And he does his whole day like that. That's someone who had something on their mind when they wrote it. And it's a really compelling story. It's not science fiction. It's not fantasy. It does, there isn't even really a story to it, except for him going about his day, continually telling people the truth. But it's clear that the author had something they were thinking about and that bothered them. And it made for a really compelling story. Yeah, very good. Colby, thank you so much. This yeah. interview is like two, five interviews in one. But this is great. I'm really glad we got a chance to speak. Yeah, of course. It's really great talking to you. And I'm glad we were able to publish you as well. This was a bonus episode of Oh My Word podcast featuring founder and editor-in-chief Colby Granville. find out more about Colby and After Dinner Conversation, please check out the link in the episode notes. To find out more about Oh My Word podcast and all the great stuff we're up to, please follow us on Instagram at Oh My Word podcast or check us out at eltechbam.com. Music is by Tim Burke. Thanks so much for joining us. Catch you next time.